Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the December 3rd, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Casey Gerald today will talk about the amazing things he's been writing, starting with his delightful and deep memoir, There Will Be No Miracles. In the second segment, Rebecca Helm, professor of at UNC Asheville, will take up the complexities of plastic cleanup in our oceans. It's really complicated. Durability and fragility on today's show. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Casey Gerald. I'm going to do this introduction a bit differently since we are today talking about his memoir, There Will Be No Miracles, which is the introduction, in fact. Listeners will get acquainted by virtue of hearing his story directly, the story of his path from South Oak, Texas, that's near Dallas, to Yale, to Harvard, to Wall Street, then to his publisher. Seems like he's been writing the story since early boyhood. Amidst his career in economic policy and government innovation, Casey was the CEO and co-founder of MBAs Across America. He has appeared at MSNBC, NPR, TED Talks 1 and 2, South by Southwest, Fast Company, and in the New York Times, Financial Times, New York Magazine, we'll talk about that publication later on, uh, Vanity Fair, Flaunt, The Guardian, Italian Vogue, among other outlets. We're very privileged to have him here. He comes to us today from New York City. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Casey Gerald. Hi there. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm marvelous. Thanks for having me. I'm thanking you. I'm. It's probably the first time I've ever gotten to read a memoir, somebody that I follow on Twitter. So it's sort of like, boy, is there the, the backstory. There's so much more context when you get uh, that much more acquainted. So I just... I want to open, Casey, that your range and your depth, they're simply stunning. I don't know when or whether I'll read anything like this again. So when you talk about this book, you consider it an intervention. Why do you call it that? What's that process like? Well, sure. You know, people ask me all the time. They say, oh, hey, my cousin wants to write a memoir. Do you have any advice for them? I say, absolutely. Don't do it. Yeah. Unless your life depends on it, she said. I never thought about being a writer. I uh, I started this book simply because I felt there was something up with me. I had achieved uh, by my late 20s about everything a kid is supposed to achieve in this society. I had gone from a poor, queer, black, damn near orphan, you know, in Oak Cliff, Texas, uh, on to all those things you described, had become, I guess, in some ways, a sort of symbol of the American dream. But because of this journey, uh, I felt very cracked up. I wouldn't necessarily say I was having a nervous breakdown, but I was often sad either way. And so I set out with this book initially just to trace those cracks with words. And uh, before I finished, one of my closest friends from Yale, uh, who had also sort of gone on this Horatio Alger uh, path, and whom I had recruited in part to to Yale uh, from St. Louis, uh, took his own life. And it was very, uh, uh, unsurprisingly, very 
uh, depressing in a lot of ways, but he came to me in a dream yes. not long after that, and I was working on this book, and I transcribed that dream in this book, and he says, you know, Casey, we did a lot of things that we would not advise anyone we love to do, and I knew what he meant. I knew that if you catch it from the right angle, a kid picking themselves up by their bootstraps looks just like a suicide, and so when I say this book is an intervention, what I'm trying to uh, say on one hand is the way we're teaching children to imagine their lives and imagine success is a dead end, but also that we can reimagine uh, our lives in a better way and try to say, starting with this book, but in everyday life, what it means to truly live, to be whole and be free. And we'll talk about the higher ed part of that equation later, because this is, you are talking right to the, the station that's placed at the August UC Irvine campus. And so it's, uh, mm. and that's something that you've talked about when we, uh, when I first got t- to get acquainted with you at the Los Angeles Times Book Festival. So we'll get to that. It's, it's not a word out of any of your publications. It was something you brought to that panel. We'll talk about that in a bit. So I, I want to know when and how could you tell that the advice that you were getting was any good? Because it was you were getting all kinds of inputs. How how did you have that that street smarts that to to glean what was going to work for you? Well, what's really beautiful, and I tell folks all the time, is that if you spend some time trying to remember what six year old you was like, you see, if five six year old me boycotted nap time. You know, I mean, I really had no interest whatsoever in in authority or in anything that anybody told me to do. I was a very strange child and uh, and in some ways quite insufferable, but also had a very clear sense of what I did and did not want and who I did and did not want to be. Now, it just so happened that 20 years, you had 20 years of conditioning and education and you start to look outside of yourself for the way that you ought to be in the world. So it's not so much that. Uh, I, uh, you know, read some book and discovered that the advice I was getting was bad. It's more so that I started to feel, and I write about this, you start to feel almost like a pebble in your shoe. And something's awry, something's amiss. And the more you start to feel that, the more you start to pay attention to it, you say, wait a minute, let me just sit down for a second. And that, in many ways, was what this book was. So I see so much of the journey of writing this and the journey of living post this book being going back and recovering five, six-year-old cases who knew a lot more about Um, what advice was and was not relevant um, because he wasn't really looking for advice. He was just looking for a way to be free, you see. But that's, but that is, that is a guiding principle, though. I mean, that, that maybe right. that is the answer to how you knew it was good advice because you knew whether it was going to uh, trap you or realize you, correct? That's right. That's right. Well, you were, as, as you said in the book, I mean, you, I'm, or you demonstrate you're a, a good student of life from listening and learning since, you, as you say, you really didn't start reading until you were 23 years of age. And you said, thanks in part to my mother and father. I knew uh, when the folks in the charge were not looking out for me. That was something out of the book there. Well, from Mrs. Davis's speech, homework assignment, which you found out was really an oratorical audition, to your Yale football team forming the more perfect Yale Black Men's Union, you led with excellence. That's that's advice you did know to take. Talk about that and its enduring lessons, starting with Mrs. Davis' speech. Mm. Homework. Well, 
I'll put it this way. Yes. There is a lot in, in that question. I'll, I'll yes. put it this way. Um, someone, uh, Fred Swanaker, who founded the African Leadership Academy some years ago, we were at a dinner and he said, leadership is disrupting your own people at a pace that they can withstand, you see. And wow. what's so beautiful about writing that relates in some ways to, say, my time as a football player at Yale is um, that if you're not honest, you're punished pretty brutally. <laughs> you yeah. see what I'm saying? Yes. And I thought what was so important about this book and one of the reasons that, you know, it's not your typical uh, American dream, Horatio Alger memoir, is that I felt that so many of those stories were dishonest. And I thought that the position that I had to take in this book, if it was going to work, if it was going to heal me, if it was going to heal anybody else, um, was the position in some ways of confession, you know, okay. and, and that, I think, tradition is, uh, you say, uh, I, not the Kim Kardashian kind of confession, you know, salacious to tell, but I mean, saying, I, I've messed up, and I want to do better, and I'm ready, and that fundamentally, is what Ms. Davis taught me in practicing a speech 50 times before you give it on stage. Every time I stumble on a word, she say, all right, baby, now start on over. You say, playing football every day after every Sunday after a Saturday on the football field, you sit for hours and you watch your film and you criticize the things you did wrong, not to poo-poo on yourself, but to say, I want to do better. And I thought if the literature was going to have any effect, and it had to start from this position of I'm going to look at it uh, as clinically as possible and say what has happened and try to uh, believe that if I get down to the core of what has happened, I can, I can do a little better. As Maya Angelou used to say, when you know better, you do better. But you've got to know first. Well, I don't think, I think looking at it as clinically as possible, I don't think it does justice to the range of, of the wit and the the sort of uh, the nonchalance and the the wit that you that you bring to this memoir. Now, folks, Casey is in a still. You're in your middle thirties right now, and that's that is a heady. This is a heady undertaking to write a memoir at early age, and not everybody reminds you of that I'm sure. But when they read it, they understand. Well, thank goodness, thank goodness that this that you wrote this. But but it's again to the point though that there it's it's so fresh. It's so frank and how you take those speech lessons, those lessons in any encounter and what you did with the Yale Black Men's Union. You decided, all right, we're going to and it was it was a coup d'etat that that was part of that union's charter under your leadership. Uh, cool. That's a bit strong, I guess. Maybe so, I guess. <laughs> well, no, that Maybe, you made you made that team sure, yeah. be more. That's right. I had extraordinary help, you see, and there were people who felt that um, when I got there, many of us felt that, you know, the team really sucked. I mean, it's not that complicated. You know, it doesn't take a Yale degree to, to tell a bad football team. And we were willing to pay the price to, 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 to make it better. And so, uh, you know, I, 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 I try not to take too much of the, of the credit for that. Well, it's uh, folks, you can see it in the book here. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Casey Gerald, and he is. We're talking about his memoir. There will be no miracles. It's published by Penguin Random House, and uh, over the holidays, this is. Uh, I'm steering you, listeners. This is. I'm talking to you. This is the book that will keep on giving. I'm going to say so. I 
want to take up the the LA Times Book Festival, you plainly point out, because we're talking about, yeah, let's tack on to the higher ed theme. You said the higher ed is committing malpractice. And you unpackaged that when you were talking about what it did for you from your South Oak, Texas trappings and your and a tough a tough family life. And so if you could take higher ed to task for that malpractice and as you put it on the LA Times Festival book panel that were other enterprises this performing at this rate, they would be out of business. <laughs> uh, well, I'll give you an example. A few years when I was in college, as you mentioned, I founded the Black, uh, Yale Black Men's Union, and I go back every year to talk to the freshmen when they arrive on oh. campus. And a few years ago, I went, and a senior administrator, one of the first black administrators in this position, very high up, he stood in front of these, you know, eighteen-year-old kids, and said, "Listen, you may be a token, but just be the best token you can be." And this really broke my heart. And I, this was, you know, maybe, you know, five, six, seven, eight years after I had left college. And so much of the same stuff was going on. We, our colleges, and, and often we do as well, we tell our young people, we say, hey, listen, we'll give you the keys to the kingdom, the right school, the right degree, the right job. We'll put you on the cover of a magazine. We'll honor you as a shining example of what young people should be. But in return, you've got to leave pieces of yourself outside. A kid called me who's just about to graduate from college a few months ago, and he said, do you have any advice for us? I said, well, what's on your mind? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, a lot of us are wondering whether we can be all of who we are and still be successful. And I said, well, the question is not can you be all of who you are and still be successful. The question is if you are not working to be all of who you are, then what good is success? And so that's what I mean when I say our colleges are committing malpractice. I don't necessarily uh, say it from the stance of a demagogue, burn it all down. But I do (laughs) that that education has to be a lot more than uh, learning what's in a book or learning how to get a job if we are not. Uh, sending young people into the world uh, more free, more whole, more themselves, uh, then we've really wasted a lot of time. Well, in higher ed, the the numbers are out there that that the, you talk about being cracked, but the cracking begins earlier uh, in that college career where the retention rate with persons of color is not at the rate of the privileged white enrollment. Sure, that's right. You know, I've been thinking about this a great deal. I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, is somewhat of a mentor to a young filmmaker. And this filmmaker was thinking about dropping out of school. He's a young black filmmaker, and he's already made a couple films, and he's uh, in college and not having the best time. And she says, oh, you know, you've got to stay in school and learn something. And I said, well, have you ever seen Paul Thomas Anderson's Charlie Rose interview from many years ago? And he said, and he's one of the best directors in the, in the world, as far as I can tell. He says the only way to learn how to make a film is to make a film, you see. So right. I think what's interesting about this moment is that we are living through a dislocation uh, in uh, our economy and our society and our workforce. And I think more and more people are questioning um, whether, you know, 
Success is increasing retention rates, which is one way to go about it. You can keep people in school and not actually add any material uh, good to their lives. That's true. I think more than the retention rate, you know, I matter about the sort of, uh, to use your language, the self-realization rate. And for some, for increasing numbers of people, I'm not entirely sure that college uh, is the best place to, to realize why you're here on the planet. Point. And I say that as somebody who's been who's twice, been, you know, over a decade in, in, in places like Yale and Harvard. So, you know, I, I don't take it lightly. Well, I I love how your evaluation and uh, with an Anand Girardas, I can never pronounce it correctly, and his Anand Girardas, Girardas, and it, yeah. he's written "Winners Take All." Actually, I got to meet him at a Politicon a couple of years before, a year mm-hmm. before I met you, and you're the two of you with, with his sort of sort of breaking down sort of the apex of the food chain. And you're t- looking at giving us the sort of the Casey case study. Um, I just want to know, do you two know each other? Have you done any collaboration yet? Anand is one of my dearest friends in the world, actually. And I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have a writing career with, without him. Uh, his little sister, funny enough, is my best friend from business school, and then we met, and he's like family to me. So, so it's funny you asked that. You know? Oh, my goodness. And his, uh, it's remarkable. That's, a, that's another required reading, folks, to winners take all, but well, that's, that's for a separate right. discussion, though. But you mentioned in one, I think it's in a publication, not in the, um, the Art of Escape, but we must ensure that all children have a true opportunity to realize their potential. We have, we ought to subscribe to a new vision of success where the goal is not as great kids, but free and whole ones like you were too, that you were saying. Mm-hmm. So I, Casey, I don't know, do you have any passages that you'd like to read out of There Will Be No Miracles Here? Um, quite open, actually. You're um, open? Yeah, I'm open. Well, what, I just, what, what would you like? I'm interested on, uh, on page 146. And yeah. and I it's it's kind of a the broadest stroke for a sample of how the clarity is un it's just un uh, unparalleled. If you would like to start, see mm. you see your uh, every sure. journey. Yeah, you see every journey is really two journeys: a going to and a going away. And it's not until the journey is over that you can see what's what, because you can't get away from nothing if you're looking at it all the time. And you can't go towards something you see too clearly, because if you saw exactly what it was, you'd have enough sense not to chase it. So you stand there at the shoreline of decision. Maybe you are more desperate to get away than to go anywhere, or more eager to find someplace new than to leave the place you know. But you need both impulses or else you're in trouble. If all you've got is going away, you might end up lost, since the only thing on your mind is running. And if all you've got is a going to, you might end up sad because what you find is rarely as good as you thought it would be unless it's different from what you imagined. So it helps to remember how awful the thing was that you left. It's a simple equation, really. And the stranger the journey, the better the math works. Just plug in what you were trying to get to and multiply it by what you were trying to get away from, and you'll understand a hell of a lot more precisely why you did what you did. At least this works for me. That's just, um, that's remarkable. And I thank you for reading that part, because I thought, when, when I first 
read this, I thought, what if I ever get Casey on the radio? I I want to hear his voice there. It's just it's just beautiful. I, <laughs> did you have anything else you wanted? Do you want to add to that? And I I'm always wondering when I read something that's this really fresh and um, mm. uh, that sort of it covers. It covers all your ages, the voice that you use. Did your editors just get out of your way? They kept they kept nurturing you, but did they get out of the way so that your authentic voice came through as it so clearly does? Well, my editor, Becky Salatin at Riverhead Books, uh, one of the most important people in my life ever. And and primarily because, uh, aside from just being an extraordinary editor, she held space for me to be myself on the page. You know, people early on, they read some early uh, chapters, and a friend of mine called, he said, what is this? You've been hired to write an autobiography. It's a straightforward exercise. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. It's grounded in the facts of your life. And there's a great tradition of autobiography all the way back to Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. led by people on the margins of society who write to assert that they exist. Go read them, learn from them, because you're going in the wrong direction. I mean, he was really concerned. And... What I appreciated about his attempted intervention is that it clarified for me that I had no interest in writing that kind of book. I didn't need to write a book to know that I existed, and I hadn't lived, I didn't feel, on the margins of anything. I thought of what Kendrick Lamar, the great rapper, said on uh, Section 8. He says, I'm not on the outside looking in. I'm not on the inside looking out. I'm in the dead center looking around. That was the perspective from which I wanted to write this book. I thought of what uh, Louis Armstrong did with Stardust. You know, Mm -hmm. Stardust for years and years with this, you know, jazz standard. Felt like, you know, hospital music to me. But Louis Armstrong takes, you know, this orphan kid who's been down in brothels in New Orleans. Right. and And he blows it wide open. Once you hear Louis Armstrong do Stardust, who wants to go back to the old way? So, you know, Charlie Parker used to always say, mm-hmm. if you don't live it, it can't come out your horn. What I wanted to do with this book and what my editor allowed me to do was let what I had lived, the sort of raw, strange magic of my own interior life, come out of my horn on the page. And I thought uh, to the extent that, you know, I didn't read until I was 23, almost, which doesn't mean I didn't get vital information. I right. listened to great albums like Lauryn Hill, uh, Unplugged, et cetera, et cetera. And, so I thought that I had an opportunity, and I was very excited about pursuing the opportunity to uh, reimagine uh, what the literature of personal narrative might be, um, and knowing uh, with my friend uh, as a warning that everybody might not like it. But <laughs> thankfully, some people have, and thankfully my editor has stood by me along the way. Well, I I just want to ask about Tashia, your sister. How how is she doing? What did she think of this memoir? She's sort of she's one of the one of those really important legs under your table. Sure, sure. You know, I have the best big sister in the world. Yeah. I write uh, about our time together. Yes. And compare us to the boxcar children in this book. One of the people were very surprised that there's so much, there's a lot of tragic stuff that happens in the book. But people were surprised. They said, oh, it's so funny. And I said, well, first of all, as Oscar Wilde said, if you're going to tell people the truth, you better make them laugh or else they'll kill you. I believe that. Aside from that, the reality is that even poor people have joy. 
you see. Uh, my sister and I moved in together as, you know, pretty much orphans, 15 and 19 years old. We were living in government subsidized housing, and we sort of built this very magical life together, uh, as I say, just like the boxcar children. I wanted to capture that in the book, and thankfully, despite the fact that this book uh, goes against every social moray that my family has taught, <laughs> taught me, uh, my sister has been greatly supportive, actually, so I appreciate it. Good. It's good to know. And so let's let's take up your black art of escape, a new vision for black Americans. That's the, the subtitle to your title. It's also, I, I'm uncannily, I think, a new vision for white people about African Americans, isn't it? Say more about that. I've never thought about it that way. What do you mean? Well, because you were talking about, you know, there's this construct of what is sort of the black American psyche where sort of, you know, you talked about you had to, when you wrote your mother's, your grandmother's obituary, it was such a, a, a the the brush, the broad strokes were that there was a submissive quality to uh, the life that she led. And with the mm-hmm. black art of escape, there is the sort of in, in the mind of the, the, the black American mind in coping in the struggle, there's this this black art of escape into some sort of ecstasy tucked back in there. And this, there, there's so many of those that of that authentic experience that's missed when the white person observes something uh, on the exterior in that the submission you're talking about that your grandmother personified. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. You see, I, I, I can't say that I hope the black art of escape, which fundamentally was, first of all, we just, commemorate the 400th anniversary yes, of the first Yes, absolutely. We've talked about that America. here. Yes. And I wanted to honor that. I wanted to reflect on all the folks that came after that. And I wanted to ask the question of what does it mean for us to live and how might we reclaim this tradition of yes. life that Tony Morrison writes about, for example, in Song of Solomon. I'm hesitant to say that it ought to be a new vision of white Americans, of black Americans. I think Fundamentally, and I say this as a Southerner first and foremost, um, and also as somebody who works in personal narratives, we really, um, white people and black people really know very little about each other. Exactly. <laughs> you see? I know, I that's mean, what I and, mean, understanding what's and, going on. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and even more urgently, we know very little about ourselves. It's not a very reflective society, America, you see. And we know very little about each other. I know very little about my own mother, my father, my sister, my grandmother, for example. Writing her obituary was probably the most I ever thought about her life. Wow. So if there's one thing I wanted to really do with the Black Art of Escape is climb so deep down yes. into one person, me, Casey Gerald, consciousness, and see, and this is the promise of personal narrative, right, that if you go deep enough down into the tunnel of I, and maybe on the other side, you'll come out in a week. So, you know, uh, I, I'm very hesitant. I was going on a, a, a news show, and the producer said, well, you're telling black people, this was one of her views of the black art of escape. She said, you're telling black people to meditate when the police are shooting them down in the street. And I said, well, first of all, um, they haven't shot us all down. And in the meantime, until we're all dead, we got to find a way to live. And yeah, living, I think, should include meditation. I said, but more importantly, I'm not telling black people anything. I'm having a conversation with them. And I have never, you know, I grew up in a completely segregated neighborhood. I've never known black people to agree about 
practically anything. I can't even get my own family to agree with me on <laughs> my view of things. Why would I think that 40 million people are going to have the same point of view as me? So I hope that if a white American does see the brief the black art of escape, they're able just to sit with it as a piece of one person's perspective and not rush so quickly to say that this is an 8,000-word report on the collective consciousness of black people, which I cannot say that it is. Well, it's it's an essential, I think, exercise in terms of your being self-reflective. It because it is a public publication that it is a an, a necessary exercise for all members of society to go that deep down probe with you to to be more reflective about themselves and about other ethnicities. I, I don't want to be Pollyanna about that, but I mean that with sure. all earnesty, Casey. Sure, sure, sure. Sure. You know, it's what's beautiful about that. And again, this is why I say it's the promise yeah. of personal narrative, right? Uh, one of the emails I received uh, after the Black Art of Escape was from a, uh, a friend of mine who is an activist in the Muslim community. And she said, uh, she in the Muslim religious community, and she said, I've been waiting for somebody to articulate this. <sighs> Because I've had to spend the past year in almost total isolation and this escape, and I felt so guilty about it until I read this piece and realized that escape is part of our birthright, you see. So um, I, I have great hopes that even the most, you know, esoteric uh, expression of one person's consciousness can reach millions and millions, if not billions, of people, and, and they can raise their hands and say, oh, wow, me too. I just can't work that way. You see, I can't work from, I can't sit at the page each day and say, oh, man, I'm going to reach my dear friend in Morocco with this essay. <laughs> you know, I, I've got to really, really commit. And this is, I hope, what There Will Be No Miracles Here does and what The Black Art of Escape does, that when you show up and you read my work, you know you're getting it uh, as honestly yes. as I can give it to you. And if, if we just start with that, then uh, who knows what kind of collective uh, revelations we'll have in our time together, uh, Issa. So as we draw down in the time, and you're talking about, because your, your work is out there now, you're, we're all waiting for the next, the next contribution. And instead of political office, which you, you set aside, you went to that sort of brink, you went to that very abyss and you walked back from that, that political office aspiration. Mm-hmm. So writing creative and really precise and pithy lines is your calling. So uh, are you working on anything right now, Casey? I am actually. One of the reasons I'm so glad to talk to you is that I was really uh, having a terrible time with an essay I'm working on. It's a bit like a a lover that's playing hard to get. You know, I know it'll love me at some point, but it doesn't love me today. Mm. Oh, (laughs) so yes, I am working, and hopefully, we'll see. We'll see what comes of it. So, so is it going to be in a journal, or is this going to be a, a a whole different book? Uh, right now, I'm working on an essay. I've got a few books in the offing, uh, and uh, you know what? What I've come to realize is that I really appreciate, prefer to work from my own sort of spur. You know, if I work from a place of saying, 
you know, if would I do this for free and would I do this if nobody else read it? You see, what was beautiful about the Black Art of Escape yes. is that nobody commissioned it. And for a long time, it didn't look like anybody was going to publish it. So I was just going to put it up for free, you know, on yeah. Tumblr and let people see it. And it just so happened at the very last minute. Uh, thanks, actually, to Anand, uh New York Magazine ran it. So okay. um, I really, you know, Kurt Vonnegut used to always say literature shouldn't disappear up its own butt. And I think it's really important <laughs> for me to do, to write from a place of joy and then figure out the publishing side of it on the back end. It clearly, it clearly shows there. Well, Casey, Gerald, I really want to thank you. I appreciate your taking the time to do this today on Ask a Leader. I thank you so much. It's been great. Oh, thank you. My guest was Casey Gerald talking about his memoir, there will be no miracles. It's published by Riverhead Books, Penguin Random House, and available at your independent book dealer. Be right back after station break and listen to Rebecca Helm, professor at UNC Asheville, specializing in the evolution and development of jellyfish and talking about the complexities of plastics in the ocean. Be right back. UCI's own Terrell Taylor, Dreamer, a portrait of Langston Hughes track there. Thank you all for staying tuned. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Rebecca Helm, professor at UNC Asheville, here to take up the complexities of plastic cleanup in our oceans. All those enterprises we're hearing about, well, it's really complicated, folks. She knows the habitat like the back of her hand. We could dedicate this segment to oceanographer A.I. Savilov for reasons that will soon become apparent. Rebecca uses jellyfish as a model system to study the complex life cycles of organisms such as frogs and butterflies that as juveniles look strikingly different from adults. Isn't that cool? Rebecca can be followed on her two blogs, Deep Sea News and Jelly Biologist, or you can see our contributions on Slate, Twitter, Google Scholar, and InfobaseLearning.com. She can tell you which species of jellyfish are the best fried or steamed. Rebecca completed her Bachelor of Science in Marine Sciences at Eckerd College, her Master's and Ph.D. in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Brown University, and completed her postdoc at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and was a National Science Foundation postdoc fellow at the Smithsonian Institution. She comes to us today from Asheville, North Carolina. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Rebecca Helm. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you were exactly the one I needed to... Uh, talk to when I I got this wire from an innovation person, an enterprise uh, that was rolling out an ocean plastic recovery unit, and I turned a couple experts, and I I've got I got Rebecca on. So to tell us about the ecosystem right there at the ocean surface, which is offshore from California and everywhere. Tell us about that ecosystem that uh, is getting missed in some of these remediation projects. Yes, yes. This poor ecosystem at the ocean surface is so mysterious and poorly known that it's really not entering any of these conversations about what to do once plastic is on the surface of the ocean. 
It's called the Newston. That's the name of the ecosystem. Really weird name. But it's composed of animals that float. And so there are snails, there are jellyfish, there are barnacles and sea anemones, even open ocean insects that float at the ocean surface and live this very bizarre, to us at least, very bizarre life sort of hanging upside down over the abyss. And so they're constantly sort of jostling around with the waves. They're at the subject of the currents and the wind. And sometimes for some of the animals, like the by-the-wind sailor, Valella Valella, they'll yeah. wash into coasts like California and arrive in very large numbers. But most of the time, they're sort of out of sight, out of mind, way offshore. And I'm, I'm going to give full disclosure here, Rebecca and listeners. I've always been a new to Brank devotee. So <laughs> always. So how what we know about this habitat because of Mr. Salivov, uh, AI Sav Savilov. So it what <laughs> what do we know about this habitat? Well, you know, we yes, thanks to a lot of amazing work that was done in the USSR in the fifties, sixties, seventies, we know that there are eco-regions out in the open oceans that are similar to the eco-regions on land. So when you say temperate forest versus tropical forest, you're making the distinction between eco-regions there. And we know that they're the same kinds of eco-regions of floating marine life out in the open ocean. And we know a little bit about the animals that live there, but only a little bit. Really, our knowledge is so limited. So, and when you're describing how these organisms are sort of hanging down there, and that that makes it even more vivid how nefarious the plastics are that that they're confounding that particular domain because they're hang they they could be they're easily confused with those that you've just described for us in that sphere that domain. It it is for me this question that really drives a lot of these follow-up questions, right? Right. What is the impact of plastic on these floating animals? And what's the impact of plastic on animals that then eat those floating animals, right? These animals do not exist outside of the broader habitat. They are interacting with the ocean below, with birds above. And they are, I got to say, some of them are really plasticky. The first time I found a by-the-wind sailor washed ashore, I actually thought it was plastic. I picked it up thinking that I was picking up trash. And only did I realize once I picked it up that, no, this is like the skeleton of an animal. And so, yeah, they wow. really have this very uh, plasticky-like look to them and are definitely out there floating in and amongst the plastic that's in the open ocean. So... Then we're, we're talking about the presence of the plastic. What is the overall, the health of this ecosystem? You know, we can't say. We don't know. Really? So this is, this is one of the weirdest things to me about the world we live in today is that for so many habitats that humans are used to interacting with, like forests and coastlines, we have some before data. We have some before information. So you have a before industrialization or before deforestation you know kind of what it looked like before like a baseline for the open exactly for the open ocean you know we have no before 
it was so difficult to get out there to study these animals before the Industrial Revolution, right, that, that very few studies were done. It doesn't mean that there were none. People, of course, were still sailing across large oceans, but there are very few. And so it's really hard to know what was the open ocean like before logging, for example, and damming of rivers really cut off the supply of plant-based carbon into the open ocean. We know that, like, huge tree logs used to wash up on really remote islands in the Pacific. That doesn't happen anymore. What were they doing? What was that habitat before these things changed? What's it like now that instead of, you know, tree logs and carbon from plants, we have plastic? How is that different? We really can't say. So then um, the health of this that we're, we're just beginning to determine, like the baseline is actually now, now that the, the first sort of understanding of that domain. But how would this be a driver for local and global health in general? Well, the open ocean, so areas beyond national jurisdiction, I mean, they cover almost 50% of our planet. And so just by size alone, you can infer that whatever is happening out there there's probably some effect that's trickling onto land. We don't know necessarily what they are, but we do know, for example, that lots of larval fish that are later consumed uh, and caught and eaten by people live right at the surface layer in the Newston and in and amongst all these animals that are floating. So we know already that they seem to be providing maybe habitat or maybe they're predators of or maybe they're preyed upon by these small fish. We, you know, know so little, but we can know already, we can begin already to connect some of the dots and say, okay, you know, we eat this fish and this fish, when it's young, lives here. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for people that rely on those fisheries to feed their families? So what concerned me most concern you, since you've, you've already had your sights on the ocean cleanup the uh, project. It's a three-meter-deep net. And then enter this launching uh, this uh, in October, a couple months ago, a catamaran design. It's, as they, uh, they describe it, it's uniquely outfitted with both a recycling center and a collection system. And it has an additional technology attached to it, a hybrid hydrothermal liquefaction, creating a revolutionary recycling breakthrough that efficiently turns all waste plastic materials into a renewable liquid fuel. Okay, so Hmm. when you got that summary, what was your reaction? Right. So, yes, there are sort of two major organizations that I'm aware of at the moment that are trying to collect plastic on the high seas. One, as you mentioned, is the ocean cleanup, which is sort of using a net. The other one is this Oceans United, which has their big catamaran. And the thing that jumped out at me first and foremost was that there is no way to separate marine life from plastic on the high seas without being there and sort of pulling the plastic out, right? So there's no easy way, you know, minus maybe, you know, amazing artificial intelligence or something really expensive that you wouldn't necessarily want to float out in the middle of the open ocean thousands of miles from shore, there's no easy way to sort those two things out. And so they said, uh, you know, that we want to take 50 tons of unsorted plastic and biomass and biomass per day and turn it into oil. 
And that was really what jumped out at me as a big red flag. Wow, they actually want to take biomass, animal life, organismal life, and turn it into oil. That just seems really counterintuitive to this broader mission of cleaning up the ocean. So I think we need to we need to get you two together and have a, a really honest uh, to goodness discussion. I mean, I, I you know I I will take this to them, but I when I got a chance to talk to you and read some of the literature about what you've been doing, I thought this enterprise is not the end all, and we need to. I think there there's an accountability. So let's talk about that accountability. The ocean. The outlaw ocean uh, that you talked about, it graphically makes the case for the lawless setting that are all the high seas. So this, the accountability for well-intentioned and strictly commercial enterprises is that there isn't anything really guiding, uh, enforcing any kind of a standard. Talk about that. Well, it's this issue of, of regulation and enforcement. So... You know, there are United Nations conventions to try to manage what's going on on the high seas so that people aren't being trapped and, you know, forced to work on ships for months at a time so that environments aren't being exploited to the point of collapse. But we don't currently have sort of a biodiversity uh, conservation program on the high seas. And that's something that's currently being negotiated. So there's currently discussion right now on protecting and conserving biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction. We'll see what happens. I think uh, the UN will be meeting again in March or April, um, possibly April or May of 2020 to to continue that discussion. That would be a great first step. I think the immediate and obvious next step is to figure out how to actually enforce these practices once we've established some basic guidelines for conservation, some basic guidelines for how much environmental impact is too much and the information you need before you can even make that decision. Once those guidelines are in place, we need to figure out how to make sure that everybody is sticking to those guidelines and following best practices because this really is a resource at the moment with very little oversight. And, you know, it's very much a common resource that uh, it's really being scrambled to be used right now. And so we need to manage that and protect it. Well, while we're talking about the oversight, and uh, I want to know, there's a couple of questions, is whether when a an enterprise like Oceans United pushes out, they're, they're, I don't know who's scrutinizing their, their business plan That in terms of the impacts, externalities of what they're doing. I mean, that, is that, that's part of the problem in the oversight you're talking about? Yep, that's, that I mean, is it right there. You just it's lawless. nail on the head. <laughs> so while we're talking, everybody's heard about Greenpeace. I've had them on, and they're they're involved with remediation. How is their work in your estimation? Um, in terms of the open ocean. In terms or of in- are are they mindful of the impacts of their remediation enterprise? Does it does it have well, externalities know, that they still need to address? Uh, you know that I couldn't say in much detail, except that I know they're working on upstream sources of plastic and trying to reduce upstream sources. And I really think that's where we need to push this conversation. I think if we go out into the open ocean and try to scoop up plastic, you're inevitably going to scoop up marine life. And we have no real way to 
estimate what the impact might be on that broader marine ecosystem. But if we can stop plastic from entering the ocean in the first place, right. a lot of that plastic is going to be washed ashore naturally through currents, and we can focus on beach cleanups to get that plastic out of the ocean off our beaches, and then I think the ocean will begin to cycle out some of the plastic that still remains. But we have to stop we have to stop the plastic from entering. So I'm happy they're working on that for sure. Exactly. It is very, very strategic of them. Well, I was reading around. At, well, actually, it was a, a tweet about uh, it was from the <laughs> Unilever CEO making a big push about a closed loop with the plastics that they are themselves generating. And so I, I really think this is a moment as we're drawing down in our time to look critically at what they're trying to advance. When they talk about closed loop, we all know that plastics do, uh, they lose quality each time it's recycled. It doesn't, there isn't a real closed loop, but maybe we can give Unilever a, maybe a job in helping establish protocols uh, internationally where the plastic is you know, ending up. I think there are so many, there are so many places in the world that, you know, purchase plastics that don't have the resources to dispose of those plastics effectively. And if there were just ways, right, to, to help facilitate that disposal or that recycling, uh, that would go such a long way. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Well, Rebecca, I, I don't know if you have any other uh, pl- plug you want to make for stepping up listeners involvement in this other than you know just rethinking reaching for that case of uh, plastic bottles but is there (laughs) one final sort of plug you'd like to make in terms of advancing and supporting your research to keep this habitat yes thank you yes well the work i'm doing is really trying to understand this ecosystem at the ocean surface on a global scale and that is way more work than one person can do so i rely heavily on Uh, community scientists reporting what they see, either to me or to iNaturalist.org. So if you see Valella or any other weird animal washed up on a beach or while you're out sailing, please, please let me know or report it on iNaturalist.org so that we can incorporate that information into our science and build a better picture of what's going on out there. Okay, see something, blog something is what we'll do. And I'll I'll put the blogs on the the summary for the podcast. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you so much for having me. My guest was Rebecca Helm, professor at UNC Asheville, specializing in the evolution and development of jellyfish, considering the complexities of plastic cleanup. So that's my wrap. Next week, I'll have on Boston University Professor Rhoda Out to talk about gaining access to our private patient data, a whole new way of decentralizing this asset and making it our own. Then we'll have on Norma Aguiar from the local Mexican consulate in Santa Ana about educational cultural offerings this season. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening.